Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. Our passage for the morning is Genesis 18. I'm only going to preach on the second half of Genesis 18, but I'm going to read the entirety of the story because it's God's Word. So let me read Genesis 18. It's printed for you in the bulletin. It is in your pew Bibles, page 12, or please follow along at home or in the West Hall. God's Word, Genesis 18. And the Lord appeared to him, that is Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be bought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. While I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. So they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seas of fine flour needed and make cakes. And Abraham, Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he prepared, and he set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, am I worn out, and my Lord is old? Shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again, he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. 
Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, O Lord, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way. And when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray before we look at this passage. Our God, we come to this marvelous passage where we see uh, Abraham exercise such great faith. And we pray, Lord, that you, by your grace, would make us like him. Be with us, Lord. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our heart are pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For Christ's sake, amen. Now, when it comes to uh, humanity, especially to the Americans, uh, this was uh, quite a week. We saw both the terrible and the sublime, the horrible and the magnificent and majestic. We saw humanity tragically uh, in tragic situations, and we also saw humanity in many ways at its greatest. What happened in Texas, my home state, I don't know if we'll ever fully understand uh, but cold comes through, an unprecedented snore, power goes out, water is frozen. It's just a terrible situation. I had a friend who told me it was like being in a third world country. Everything was shut down. And then even as people are dying, and we don't even know how many people have died yet, but even when the, the situation is still going on, the blame game starts, right? The environmentalists blame the deregulators. The deregulators blame the environmentalists. I mean, it was so sad, so sad, humanity not looking so good. But then we have this bright spot on the news cycle of perseverance. The great nickname Percy lands on Mars, 300 million miles away. Do that math someday, 300 million miles away. I I didn't go back and double check this. This is from a news report I, I heard earlier in the week. But When Percy hit the atmosphere of Mars, it was traveling at the speed of 12,000 miles per hour, right? Uh, The heat shield absorbed heat of over 2,300 degrees. Uh, There were seven minutes from when it hit the Martian atmosphere to when it gracefully landed. It stuck its landing like Simone Biles. It was amazing, right, if you saw it. Uh, And there were seven minutes from when it pierced the atmosphere until uh, hitting the surface. uh, And it hit exactly right where it was supposed to hit. Amazing. Here's the most amazing thing to me, though. Because it takes light 11 minutes to travel from Mars to, to, to us, the communication has to travel 11 minutes, everything had to be pre-programmed and done remotely. They couldn't control a thing because it takes so long for the information to travel across those many miles. All done remotely. Okay, so if you're watching the scene there in Pasadena, the Jet Propulsion Lab, the JPL, and you see all these kind of nerds in golf, blue golf shirts, uh, their masks on, and like they're, you know, waiting to land. And then you see the, it's actually 11 minutes to late, and you see the land, and they, you know, they explode. And, you know, all these nerds fist bumping, uh, no disrespect to uh, aerospace engineers. But anyway, uh, it was great, right? It was a great moment in a sad news cycle. The agony and the ecstasy. Well, this week we are continuing our study of the life of Abraham. And in past weeks we have seen Abraham at his worst, using people, particularly women, 
to protect himself, to serve his own interest, to serve his own comfort. But today, today we see Abraham, in fact, I would argue humanity at its finest, most tender, most true, most authentic. Because today we see Abraham as the friend of God. And we see Abraham earnestly beseeching God on behalf of other people at great cost to himself. I want to argue this morning that Genesis 18 is a picture of human greatness, what a great human life can look like, drawn in close intimacy to God and extending self in love and service for other people. Friendship and prayer. Friendship with God expressed in... Here's my outline. Friendship with God expressed in intimacy and prayer to God expressed in love and expressing love for others. Uh, one of our elders uh, said to me this week that friendship... He said this about friends. He said, tell me who your friends are. He used to tell this to his boys, Greg Gashler. Tell me who your friends are, and I will tell you who you are. And I would say about prayer, tell me what you pray and how you pray, and I'll tell you what and who you love. So friendship and prayer... But first, friendship with God that expresses intimacy with Him. As I mentioned a moment ago, I'm not going to talk about the whole first half of the chapter, but basically these three men show up uh, at the first part of the chapter, and there's this interaction. They're told, Abraham and Sarah are told again of the birth of their firstborn, which will be a year from now, the birth of Isaac. And it appears that two of the men are angels in disguise of some sort, and the other is the Lord Himself. Okay, so verse 17, they start to head out. They start to head towards Sodom. And it says, verse 17, the Lord, either to himself or to the angels, either talking to himself or the angels, he says, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? And as we will see, the Lord does end up sharing the information with Abraham. And you see, functionally what God is saying, and what we see played out in this story, is that God views Abraham as someone that he can trust. He views him as a covenant partner with whom he can deal. To put it in our language, God sees Abraham as a friend. He sees Abraham as his friend. And this is significant because Abraham is the only individual in all the Bible, the only individual in all the Bible who is called the friend of God. Abraham is called the friend of God in both the Old and the New Testament. Isaiah 41 and James chapter 2 Abraham is called the friend of God. Others, you know, it says Moses was like a friend to God. And Jesus promises that we can be God friends, but Abraham is the only one who is actually called the friend of God. And despite his failures and foibles, and Abraham had them in legion, Abraham is God's friend. And in that friendship, there is intimacy and there is boldness. Well, I want to note three things, though, three things about Abraham's friendship with God. And the first is this, is God chose, God chose Abraham. Verse 19, the first part of it, God says, I have chosen him. I have chosen him. You see, all of life, all of life is, an, is a response to God's initiation, to God's grace, to God's grace. And when it comes to friendship with God, this is so important. When it comes to friendship with God, God initiates. God takes the first step. And because God does move towards us, we can draw near. 
We can be his friend. He makes the first move. You know when you're trying to make a friendship or when you're, if you're, not, if you're married now, but when you're younger, you're trying to make that relationship with that other person, the other sex that you want to marry or whatever? Like you kind of like you put a little bit out. You know, there's this back and forth. With God, he has he is said, I like you. I love you. I'm for you. I've chosen you. That question is off the table. So all we have to do is respond and to move towards him in friendship. God chose you. He likes you. But the second thing about being the friend of God is to be chosen by God means that we are called to choose God's priorities. To be chosen by God means to choose his priorities. The middle part of verse 19, I have chosen Abraham that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. You see, being the friend of God, being the friend of anyone for that matter, being the friend of God means doing something, being like him, caring and acting about the things that God cares about, the things that God acts upon. And here, verse 19, it's called doing righteousness and justice. Now, what are those? Just, I mean, righteousness is personal holiness. That is a pure life, a life that honors God's moral code. Justice, justice is extending yourself for other people taking responsibility for other people, making things right, making someone else's concern yours and making it right, being an advocate for other people. And I find it fascinating that the immediate context, this isn't even Marshall trying to make an application, the immediate context here is parenting, right? It says that he may command his children to keep the way by doing righteousness and justice. I mean, it's really pretty simple and straightforward. In our parenting, in our discipling of our children, of our grandchildren, to what matters, are we parenting towards righteousness and justice? I mean, do a little inventory of our parenting. Is it unto these things, these priorities of God, righteousness and justice? But the third thing about friendship with God that I want to talk about this morning, and I owe this insight to Rankin-Wilburn, is that friendship with God is unsettling. It's unsettling. The Lord answers the private question of verse 17 through 19, but when he decides to share with Abraham. Now verses 20 and 21, the Lord is speaking to Abraham. Verse 20, then the Lord said again to Abraham, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Translation to Abraham, I'm going to judge and destroy Sodom. Now that is powerful and unsettling information. We know that Abraham has family there, Lot. We also know that he has, I don't know if you'd call them friends, but acquaintances there. He has had some interaction with the king of Sodom in Genesis 14. He knows people there, and he's a, he's a, Abraham's a newcomer in the land. These are people that owe him favors that can help him in his new land. Uh, this is unsettling information. But friends, any good and deep relationship is unsettling, Right? If there are parts of your marriage that are not challenging and unsettling, I have to ask, is it an honest relationship? You know, I like to say that marriage is a full-length mirror that talks, that talks back, and it shows you. It's unsettling. You see, to really let another person in or to be let in, to see the ugliness, the beauty of another person, it's terrifying. 
It is unsettling. And so it is with our relationship with the living God. It's unsettling. I mean, when Job hears all about God and his might, what does he do? He puts his hand over his mouth in Job chapter 40. When Jesus' disciples see him calm the water in this great display of power, they say, who is this man? Who is this? And in chapter 11 of the book of Romans, when Paul is reflecting on the majesty of God's ways, uh, he says, who can discern the mind of God? It is past finding out. To relate to God is unsettling. I got a great text this week from one of our teenagers who had been reading his Bible, getting to know about God. But he was perplexed and unsettled by what he encountered, wants to talk about it. And so it is. It is perplexing. It is unsettling. And my simple question is, do you allow God to unsettle you? Do you engage with the real God to such a level that it does, in fact, unsettle you? Now, we've talked about Abraham's friendship. Before we talk about his prayer, let me say a little bit about Sodom. Because God is about to judge Sodom. The next chapter in the Bible, Genesis 19, God does judge Sodom. Fire rains down, it's destroyed. The story of Lot and the destruction of Sodom is the next chapter in the Bible. We're not going to preach on it We're going to, because of time's sake. But I do want to say a few things. But for Sodom, we, when we think of Sodom, what do we think of? We think of sexual perversion. It's interesting, it doesn't say that here. And actually, when the Bible talks about Sodom, here's how it talks about it. Let me read from Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 49 and 50. This is what Ezekiel 16 says about the sin of Sodom. Ezekiel 16, 49. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me. What is the sin of Sodom? Pride. Gluttony. A love of comfort and a failure to care for the poor and needy. I think it's a little safer for us to think of Sodom as a place of perversion. Now the reality is every town, this is an interesting exercise to think about, every town, every place has its own temptations, right? Uh, We moved here from Los Angeles seven years ago. In Los Angeles there's this longing, this thirst for experience. I lived for D.C. in a time and the longing of people in D.C. is for what? It's for power. New York City, a longing for wealth and influence. Boston, it's a longing for learning, for intellectual accomplishment. Well, what is it for Chicago, the Midwest, the North Shore? It's a little more difficult to identify, I think. I think, first of all, because we live here. I live here. I'm like, what is it? So I spent some time thinking about it, and here's my best shot. I think I'm right at some level about part of this. I think our temptation is comfort and our children. Comfort and our children. Which sounds frighteningly like Sodom. You know, we have temptations to focus on certain sins that maybe don't tempt us or that we're not given over to. But the Bible says that Sodom is judged for pride, gluttony, comfort, and a failure to care for the poor and the needy. I think I'll just let the Bible speak for itself. 
So we've seen Abraham's friendship with God in intimacy. Let's see Abraham's friendship with God in action as he prays for the Sodomites. The prayer to God expressing love for others, verses 22 and following. Now this is a beautiful scene in the scriptures because what happens is the angels start to move on. And it says, verse 22, Abraham stood there. I love that. And then in verse 23 it says, he drew near. He drew near to the Lord. I mean, Abraham is about to be in the speech. He is bold. He is assertive. He is audacious, speaking to the living God. Let me read verses 23 through 25. Then Abraham drew near, and he said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Can you imagine speaking to God like that? Far be that from you, God. He's bold. And then he goes on, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Abraham is bold. Abraham is so bold and assertive. And God says, you know, for 50, I will not destroy Sodom. But Abraham keeps going. Abraham is, bar- I don't know what else to call it, but bargaining with God, bargaining with God. And he go, there's this back and forth. He said, well, what about 45? And it, God says, I won't destroy it for 45. Well, what about 40? I won't destroy it for 40. What about 30? Won't destroy it for 30. Won't destroy it for 20. What about for 10, God? No, I won't destroy it if you can find 10 righteous in the city of Sodom. Now, it begs the question, why does he stop at 10? Why does he stop at 10? Well, the text does not exactly say, but we do know that the minimum administrative unit for communal life in Israel was 10. We also know that the minimum number of people for a synagogue was 10. Now, remember, the prayer is not to remove the righteous. The prayer is the city would be spared for the sake of the righteous. So here's kind of what I think. I think if there are not 10 There's no opportunity to have a leavening influence. In short, put in our language, you need 10 people to make a difference. You need 10 people to make a difference. And friends here, I got news for us. We got 10. We got 10. And we can have a difference. I love what Eugene Peterson says. He says, because Jesus wanted to change the world, he spent time with 12 Jewish men. The vision of our church is to, have a ch- to change the landscape of the North Shore and through the North Shore have a healing impact on the city of Chicago, which is on fire right now, and through Chicago have a gospel impact on the world, right? That's a big vision. That's a big vision. Well, I got news. We got 10. We got 10. And God can do mighty things and have mighty influence through small numbers. And we don't even have small numbers. But let's look at Abraham and his prayer. Let's look at Abraham and his prayer. It's bold and beautiful. Orson Bean was actually married to Allie Bean, uh, who, was on, who was still on the bold and the beautiful. So uh, anyway, sorry. Um, the bold and the beautiful, made possible by three things, this bold and beautiful intercession of Abraham. The first thing, this, this, this bold and beautiful intercession is made possible That Abram has a keen sense of who he is. He knows who he is. Verse 27, he says, I am but dust and ashes. He knows with whom he deals, and he knows who he is. But the second thing that makes this intercession possible 
is Abraham's robust awareness of God and who he is and his attributes, particularly his love and his justice. Abraham, as we've already talked about, was and is the friend of God, the friend of God. He knew that God had chosen him. He knew that there was nothing in himself that earned anything with God, earned God's love. He knew that God loved mercy and love because he knew that God loved him. But he also knew that God was just. Verse 25, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? So here's what's happened with Abraham. The reality that God is both just and merciful, loving and righteous has taken root in Abraham's heart. It's taken root and it's grown. And so my question, are you saturated with God? Are you saturated with God and His attributes to such an extent that you would pray like this? One way you know if you're saturated with God is if you pray like this. Are you filled up with God so that you can pour your heart out for other people like Abraham did? Because if you're saturated with God, you will be filled with, and this is the third thing about this prayer, you will be filled with concern for other people who appear to do no good for Abraham, right? These people are not beneficial to him. And this is the second time that he has interceded for Sodom at cost to himself, the first being Genesis 14. You see, the friend of God was the friend of sinners. The friend of God was the friend of of sinners. And so he prays, he intercedes. It is creative, it is persistent, it is costly. He keeps going after these sodomites. Do you love people like this? Do you love people like this creatively, persistently, costly, praying for them? Let's just, just because it's fun, let's take the political landscape for just a moment. I've stayed away from this, but let's just touch this for just one second. I don't know who, you're, who the bogeyman for you is. Maybe your bogeyman is Donald Trump. Maybe your bogey person is AOC or Nancy Pelosi. Do you pray for those people? Do you pray for the people that fall? The, whoever it is that is the opposite side of you, that's the, whatever, do you pray for them? Do you pray for their followers? Like Abraham. Abraham is praying at cost to himself. Why? Because he is filled up with God. He is filled up with God, and it spills over in his love for other people. You see, Abraham's prayer for Sodom is humanity at its finest. We see Abraham as intimate with God and bold for other people. Actually, it's not humanity at its finest. You see, but this moment in Scripture, it points forward to humanity's finest moment. It points forward to humanity's finest moment because this scene is reminiscent of a scene in Jesus' life when he approaches and looks over another city, the city of Jerusalem. Luke 19 says, When Jesus drew near to the city and saw it, he wept over Jerusalem, saying, Would that you had known the day of the things that make for peace. Jesus is weeping over an unrepentant Jerusalem. But then he does something different than Abraham. Abraham prayed for Sodom, but Abraham did not go into, he did not enter Sodom. But Jesus entered the city, the city of judgment. Abraham interceded to ward off the judgment. Jesus went in and experienced and faced the judgment, the justice. Because a few days later after he wept over the city, Jesus would die for that city. He would die for you and me 
for the sins of the world. You see, He faced what we deserved. He faced the judgment, the justice that we deserved. He walked into that city knowing where it led Him, which was to His own death. And His death and resurrection meant that our sins are forgiven, that we have eternal life. But it doesn't just stop there. His death and resurrection means not just that we have resurrection, the, the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. It also means that we can be friends with God. We're invited into the very life of God because after weeping over the city and just a little bit of time before he died in that city, Jesus said to his disciples in John 15, 15, No longer do I call you servant, I call you friends. I call you friends. You see, to be friends with God means intimacy with Him. It means to love and prioritize the things He loves and prioritize, to do the things He does. It looks a lot like Abraham in this passage. Intimate with God, interceding on behalf of other people. My Bible reading this morning just happened to be Mark chapter 3. And I'd forgotten this. I'd seen it before, but I'd forgotten this. When Jesus chose His disciples in Mark chapter 3, it says that He chose those to be with Him, and to send them out, to be with him and to intimacy and intercession for others, to be with him, to know him. You see, friends, according to the Bible, according to the Bible, human greatness is marked by intimacy and friendship with God and because of that in love for other people. Human greatness is marked by intimacy and friendship with God and love for other people. And so here we see Abraham in Genesis 18, a man of lived faith with deep flaws, awful failures, but who kept pursuing God, failing forward, who prayed to God to have mercy. He cared about righteousness and justice. He prayed for other people. He was willing to have his life upended. It was a beautiful life. It was a life lived on a grand and majestic and even epic scale. Don't you want that? Let me tell you something. It is real and it is available. You can be the friend of God. Let me pray for us. Our great God, I think the great comfort of the story of Abraham is that you chose him when he brought nothing to the table, that you liked him, that you loved him, and therefore he could respond and move towards you and even be bold, assertive, and audacious on behalf of others. I pray that you would give me that spirit. I pray that you would give everybody in this room and in the West Hall and online that spirit, that spirit of faith and friendship with you. Would it be so, Lord Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners. Amen.